I am with uh, Alice Lattice, who has been a bioenergetics analyst longer than anybody else except Alex Lowen. She helped found the Institute of Bioenergetic Analysis in 1956, and uh, she's also known to the rest of the world as the co-author of uh, the G-Spot. Uh, hello, Alice. Hi. Hi, Serge. So, um, uh, do you want to say something to start, I think? Well, I'd like to read you a quote to start, and I want you to guess who said it. <laughs> wow. The quote goes this way, not protection of old financial or political privileges, but safeguarding the planet, Earth, and transforming its technological structure is the task of today. Let us hope that the great industrial powers of our planet have retained their pioneering spirit. Who do you think said that and when? Well... I feel put on the spot, <laughs> I get to have some empathy for what it's like to be the person interviewed, and uh, I would assume that it's somebody predating, you know, our, you know, the 21st century. That's true. I'm very curious about who it might be. This is a quote from Wilhelm Reich's brief to the United States Court of Appeals, which he wrote himself in October of 1956. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is pretty amazing, yeah. It could be a speech by Al Gore. Yes, very much so. So I guess it's a, it's a very nice way to, uh, to show how relevant uh, body psychotherapy is and people who have thought along these lines. Well, Reich was very much aware of desert formation and the problems that the, planet, that the planet's facing. And I think in his description, he was saying, you know, I wonder if global warming and global dimming and air pollution are related to what Reich called D-O-R. I don't know that they are, but I, I suspect they are. And I wonder if the, you know, right when he was working on desert formation in Arizona, was talking about the unidentified flying objects that were coming around to see what he was doing, and he was reporting about it to the Air Force. And I wonder if they aren't some of the same things that when he was trying to reverse desert formation, I think that... What, we, what the government is trying to keep secret from us today is something he was always talk, talk, he was talking about in the 1960s. Yeah, so in other words, there's always a link with um, um, something larger than just uh, uh, the little units that we're accustomed to, something that we take into consideration, a larger context. Right, and larger than body psychotherapy. Yeah. And then I wonder if Reich was not quantifying what the Chinese called... Qi. Mm, that orgon would be similar to chi. Mm. So you're talking about, um, you know, that part of the world, and actually these days you live uh, in New Mexico. So I'm just curious to see if actually there is, a, you know, there is any kind of um, uh, relationship with, you know, your interest in uh, Reichian 
approaches and living in uh, the southwest? No, the southwest isn't, isn't the important factor. The fact that I live in a co-housing community is important. Mm. I learned from Rice very, you know, about the importance of the very early years, moments of life. I worked in the, for a brief time in the infant research center of Rice. Yeah. And um, so I became interested in educated childbirth and taught the first Lamas course in this country. And I also became interested in breastfeeding and wrote many articles and then wrote my doctoral dissertation on the role of information and support to outcome of breastfeeding. And I now live in a co-housing community, which, in, which there are, it's, it's multi-generational. And the young couples here are practicing all the things I work for. They are practice, they practice educated childbirth. They all breastfeed. They practice attachment parenting. And they parent each other's children. And it's really, um, you know, Margaret Mead was the one who rescued me from uh, Columbia because they said my thesis topic on breastfeeding wasn't important. So and I should do something like risky shift or cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and I was going to be... I was going to be so delayed because nobody would be on my committee until Margaret Mead said she would be. So you, so you were, uh, you were studying uh, psychology at Columbia. I was studying. I was in a department called Home and Family Life, which was a combination of anthropology, sociology, and psychology. And Margaret Mead talked about the deadly nuclear family, and I think she was probably right. And so I live in a co-housing community now, which is a small community. And we practice integrated pest management. There is no smoking. There are no cars inside. And it's safe for kids. Kids from the time they can walk and run around on their own. So it really is a, a safe haven for raising kids in, a, in the way that Rice talked about and that A.S. Neal talked about. So, so what you're talking about is that um, um, very much about figuring out a way to practice uh, what you preach. I, I didn't quite understand that. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just saying you're talking about uh, having found a way to practice what you preach, not just find principles about how to live life, but really figuring out a way to, uh, uh, you know, finding a place where you can live that way. Well, yes. That, that happened very late in life, but I, I did um, <clears throat> study the Lamar's method of educated childbirth and attempted to practice it myself and succeeded with my second child. And I breastfed both my kids for about three years and um, we quit by verbal agreement. So I kept trying to practice what I preached in many different ways. But living in the co-housing community, it's really very satisfying to see uh, the younger generation uh, doing what I worked so hard for. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, you made a big impact on was with the G-spot. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel now, uh, looking back on it, of how it has permeated the culture? Well, it's very interesting because many, many people that I read, meet have heard of the G-spot, but they don't know there was a book about it. They don't know that that's how it came about. And the other thing that really people don't know, is the G-spot grew out of my work with body psychotherapy. In what way? Um, 
The women in its bioenergetics began to meet separately from the men in 1977. Uh -huh. And they were, they were, uh, I served as secretary to ten meetings in New York. And the women were reluctant to really be open about what they really felt, particularly in the presence of two powerful female trainers. So Harold and I decided that we would give them a chance to speak anonymously, and we created a male, that's N-A-I-L, questionnaire, and we gave it to all the women bioenergetic therapists, both all, all people who'd experienced bioenergetic therapy and had given it. And we asked them a lot of questions about what they felt the uh, value of body psychotherapy for them was. And I took that, the results of that study to a meeting of the of Quad S, the Society for the Study, what, what, is, what does it stand for? Scientific Study of Sexuality, um, under the title From Freud Through Height, All Partly Right and Partly Wrong, because the bioenergetic theory up to that time, Al Lowen's theory, was that the mature woman would be vaginally responsive. And indeed, bioenergetic therapy helped many women become more responsive vaginally, but they thought both the clitoris and the vagina were important. Uh, I had been on the boards of both the Bioenergetic Institute and Quad S, and they believed opposite things. One said only the clitoris matters, the other said only the vagina matters, and the fact is they both matter. And so when I took this, this study and gave a presentation, I met our co-authors, Beverly Whipple and John Perry, we're talking about the G-spot and female ejaculation. Uh -huh. And that seemed to me the clue to how everything belonged together. That's how the G-spot came about. So and I wanted people to know that body psychotherapy played a major role in the development of this book and fought very hard to get, get the study put in as a appendix. I finally won, but boy, I had to fight hard for that. And it sold over a million copies worldwide. So, in a way, it advertised bioenergetic therapy rather widely. Yeah. And, and uh, in a way, when you point out that many people don't even know it's a book, um, it's a proof of how successful it is that it's penetrated the culture. Yeah. It was a, in a question in trivial pursuit, and um, words were named after it. It was really interesting. Yeah. So... Actually, what uh, you're, you're describing is how you found it was uh, through uh, research. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've been a very, very uh, strong proponent of research. And well, John May, in one of the issues of the, of the uh, Journal of Body Psychotherapy, uh, USA, the Journal of USABP, uh, says it very succinctly. He says, first you have your own experience, your own personal experience, and then you have the observation of other people, and that's what you base your, your theories on, but then if you don't test them, then you have a belief system, because I happen to be a humanist, I don't want to have another belief system that isn't supported by, by research. Yeah. So you're talking about three stages. One is the personal experience, mm -hmm. two is the observation, the clinical observation, and three is the experimental approach in order to test things. Yeah, but it took me 50 years to get the body psychotherapist to give an award for research. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a long struggle, and the bioenergetic people didn't 
didn't cop to it. So is there a way that as an individual psychotherapist, uh, I or other people who listen to this, uh, can have a more research-oriented attitude in our ordinary workday? Gosh, that's a tough question. Because, you know, the Europeans, because they, they, ha they have to have research in order to get the government to pay for, uh, for the work that they do, They, they've collaborated in, in major ways, and it's, it's a tough thing to do, but it has to be, I think, a collaborative adventure. So really what you're saying is that um, as long as we remain isolated in our office, just working one uh, clinician and to one client, uh, there is not enough perspective in order to, uh, to go beyond our own experiences and have something that is uh, uh, research-oriented. Well, you can do case studies. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a, a thing that was a sort of beginning research, when I first started out to do bioenergetic workshops, I did an initial thing asking people what they wanted from the, from the workshop, and then I did a, uh, a report at the end asking them whether they got what they wanted, what they liked, what was bad about it, what was really downright not good. And I kept a record of, of almost all the replies that I got and submitted those, and they were dismissed. It was, it was, there was a whole anti-intellectual thing, as if the head is not a part of the body. And the whole, in the 60s and 70s, people were tending to want to deal with their feelings, but not with their thoughts. Yeah. So in other words, um, uh, you're talking about reclaiming the head as very much a part of the body. Well, now that we know a lot more about neuroscience, we can't, there's no way we can dismiss the head. But, you know, Charles Kelly, when he, he used to do um, uh, workshops in feeling and workshops in purpose. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted to go to the workshops in purpose. They all wanted to go to the workshops in feeling. And that's understandable because in our culture we've been taught to suppress the feeling part of ourselves. But to dismiss the thinking part of ourselves, it's sort of like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're claiming for um, finding a balance uh, between the two approaches. Oh, yeah. yeah. And actually what you're describing is this uh, process where you were asking clients to, to, uh, to think about what they had wanted and what they got is also maybe also fostering an experimental approach in the clients. Uh, having them be involved in uh, thinking about what they had been experiencing. Yeah, an, an individual therapist could do that. Mm -hmm. But I think we need a big collaborative. I think we need a big collaborative effort that's well financed and well thought out in order to become um, a division of APA. I mean, I get I get very frequently from from uh, HMOs. Um, and other things, uh, questionnaires to fill out about what kind of a therapist I am. Uh -huh. I never give, I'm never given the choice of body psychotherapist. It's like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I could be a rational emotive therapist. I could be a, 
um, psychoanalytic psychotherapists. I could be a family and marriage and family counselor psychotherapist. But nobody says, are you a body psychotherapist? But they should. Yeah. We're not recognized. And until we do the research and get it out there, we aren't going to be. And the research would be to show how a body-oriented approach is actually effective in helping people deal with problems. And, and you know, there are people who are not actually body psychotherapists, like Candace Kurt, who are interested in body psychotherapy and know about it and have experienced it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think among the people who are members of USABP, some people uh, were trained in traditional psychotherapy and came to body-oriented psychotherapy through personal experience of yoga or other ways of discovering that they had a body and then decided to incorporate some of that personal finding in the way they dealt with clients. How did you... uh, get interested in uh, uh, Reichian approaches and later in Lowen's work? Well, originally, uh, I um, the first place I studied after I got out of political science, I was, I was in the early uh, civil rights movement, and I have a case in the Civil Rights Museum, but I was studying at the Washington School of Psychiatry with Eric Fromm and Peter Fromm Reichman and people like that, and then I had a... Uh, Washington School type of psychoanalysis, and I wasn't satisfied with the with the results on me, and I wasn't satisfied. I became a social worker, and I wasn't. I was working with Nathan Ackerman, who was starting family therapy, and I wasn't satisfied with the results. So I uh, sought out um, Theodore Wolf, who was Reich's translator, and started becoming interested in organ therapy. And so you started. And being interested from your own uh, personal sense of what was good for you. And what was good for the people I worked with. I, yes. wasn't, I didn't think that we were effective enough. Mm-hmm. And so um, your own experience and your clinical experience were that by paying attention to the body and following the approaches of Reich, you started seeing things being more effective. Well, I... <laughs> I thought so, but it was it was a very difficult time. I don't know how much of the history you know. Um, well, I actually have one of the accumulators, organ energy accumulators that was made at Organon. I didn't send it back when the FDA ordered all the accumulators sent back. Mm-hmm. And I had experience with the accumulator with my mother, and. Um, I had a lot. I mean, I had a lot of involvement with that, and then Reich went, you know, refused to testify in court, mm-hmm. or refused to have the uh, American Civil Liberties Union represent him, and lost his court case and was was put in jail for contempt of court. Actually, where yes. he died. Well, people were getting sick in Oregon because he was experimenting with radiation and the effect of of organ energy on radiation, and everybody got sick. Uh And those were very difficult times. Yes. And so I just quit the whole thing and went to work as a a head of a child guidance department in a public school system where I could be my own boss and do whatever I thought was useful for the kids. Uh And then I I was dating a psychoanalyst, and uh, he was living in his head and working in the dark, in a dark place, and I suggested that he 
maybe get a consult with Al or John because they just opened an office together. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I learned about the Tuesday evening seminars, and that's how I got back into, bi- into body psychotherapy after sort of leaving it because of the stuff that was happening with Reich and the whole organ movement. Yeah. The same way that uh, also uh, Lowen and Piracos had left the Reich and fold at that time. Yeah. So, you're talking about your experience as a therapist. Would you maybe give a sense of what it's like for you to work as a therapist? Well, I, I've talked about, in, in, the, in this thing I wrote for Jackie, I've talked about inside out and outside in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think of the Russian heritage as being sort of from the outside in. Could you elaborate to that a little bit on that, from the outside in? Well, you do, you look at people from the outside and see what they're like, and then you do things to them. That's what Rice did. Okay. He poked them and prodded them, and, and, and Rowan and, uh, to office, you know, they, they squeezed people's jaws and had them gag and did all sorts of things. And I find a lot of what they did is useful, but there was not, uh, when Bob Lewis, um, talked at the last conference, mm-hmm. spoke about the time that uh, he finally said to John Caracas one day, would you like to know what's really going on with me? And John stopped pounding on his chest and said, well, yes, I would like to know. <laughs> Bob said, well, I'd like to knock your bloody head off your shoulders or something like that. <laughs> and then therapy began for both of them because I think that there's, there were two trends. There was... The trend that came from Rice and the trend that came from Elsa Gimbel, which was somatic, ex- well, not somatic experiences, but um, there was a whole group of, of people who were asking you to find out what you felt inside. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's coming together now, in a way. I mean, there was a, a whole time when when people in bioenergetic therapy were worried, were concerned because... Um, too much is being done to the client, and not yeah. enough attention paid to what the client was experiencing and wanting to say. And I remember when Martha Stark, the psychoanalyst in Boston, was talking about one person, one and a half person, and two person therapy. And the two person therapy is the relational therapy, which everybody knows is what really makes the difference now. Yeah. So what is it like when you do therapy, when you're with a client? I do an awful lot of different things, but I still find a lot of the stuff I've learned, you know, I find it very useful to ask the person to move their pelvis and see whether they know they have a movable joint there or not. Mm. Um, but I also do a lot of the other kind of work, and a lot of verbal work and a lot of uh, relational work. Sometimes I use... Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy if I have a, like I had today, a person with a severe early personality disorder whose life is going to continue to be a shipwreck unless they change their behavior. And after they've got their behavior a little bit in line, then we can begin to work on the anger that's behind it and the, and the lostness that's behind it. So I work in many, many different ways. And I work with couples and I work with the I sometimes work with families. I don't do a lot of group work today, but I did quite a bit of group work early on. Yes. And uh, so 
what you're saying is that uh, you use a lot of different approaches, so uh, very much like what you were saying at the beginning of not being a faith-based person, uh, you're very pragmatic in your approach in terms of figuring out what, uh, what the situation is and what seems to work for it. Yeah, and like I said to you before, you know, when you meet a new person, it's really an exciting adventure. Uh, and it's, it's also like a detective story to find out what it's really like for this particular person. And always, you know, always if they don't breathe, that's a problem. If they don't breathe deeply or if their diaphragm is stuck. Uh, I agree with Al in that sense, but I don't think that's the whole story. Yeah. So what kinds of things, say, when you um, you see a new client or when you see, um, you know, a client comes into your office maybe that you see regularly, what kinds of things does your eye go to or your ears go to? Uh, what the kinds first of thing thing I ask the new client is, if we were successful in our work together, what would that look like? Hmm. So that gives me an idea of where they want to go. Yeah. Not where I want them to go, but where they want to go. Okay. And so the, the answers can be uh, all kinds of, certainly it, not... It could be I'll stop fighting with my spouse. Mm-hmm. It could be I will, I will have sexual feeling again. It could be... Um, it could be a whole bunch of different things. Okay. But a lot, a lot of... Um, I also do a lot of integrated work with with doctors because very often there are medical components to the things that people come to me for. And I don't want to be treating a person for an emotional problem when there's a physical problem that needs to be handled first. So what happens in practice is that uh, you have some sense of what might be the physical problem and you ask the client to check with the doctor? Or how do, you, how do you handle that? Because I'm sure that's something that a lot of body psychotherapists deal with, paying attention to physical symptoms. Well, you know, if a person is living on coffee and donuts mm-hmm. and is feeling fatigued, you can't really deal with the fatigue without dealing with their diet habits. Okay. Um, if a person is taking antidepressants of certain varieties, and has uh, no longer the capacity to enjoy sex. I, I had a client recently, and the, uh, the couple thought that the reason that she stopped feeling sexual after her father died, but it turned out that that was the very time she started taking an antidepressant, which is known to remember her orgasm. Yeah. So the, the connection between the medical and the psychological, I'm very aware of. Okay. I send people to nutritionists for massage. I I I ask for you know uh, men who have erectile problems to get the testosterone checked. Mm-hmm. So I work collaboratively with a lot of different people. Yeah. So. Um what is it that feels really satisfying, you know, in your work with people? Uh, you know, what gives you a sense of deep satisfaction when you, when what you do? Well, when we connect, when we connect really well and have fun in the <laughs> sessions, as well as as moving in the right direction. Yeah. 
And, you know, people are astonished because they don't know what body psychotherapy is. And there, I think there's only one other body psychotherapist in Santa Fe who works, does uh, somatic experiences. Mm -hmm. But, and there are a couple of, um, there are a couple of, um, Ron Kurtz people, um, but they really people don't know when they come to me what a body psychotherapist is. And when I start to work with them, with the body, people say to me something like, my God, this is the first real therapy I ever had. <laughs> you know, people who've had a lot of therapists. Yeah. But it's only been talking therapy. So, so in other words, um, your experiences, despite uh, how you're well-known as a body psychotherapist, actually in clients, the cl among the clients who come to you, many come just because you're a therapist and don't really know what... Most people come, I'm, I'm known as a psychologist, that's my license here. Right. And many people come to me for sexual problems because they find me on the internet in connection with the G-spot. Right. And so they come to me, with, but they have no idea that I do something apart from working with just words. You know, when I ask them to stand up and take a comfortable stance, and I see their knees are locked, yeah. I say to them, "Well, if you never learn, any, if you never get anything else out of the therapy with me, remember to keep your knees soft." And I show them why. It astonishes them. Yeah. So, in other words, that um, uh, even with, uh, you know, that's uh, one thing that you could share with the uh, uh, members of USABP is that even if people don't come to you uh, specifically looking for body psychotherapy, there's a way that using uh, body psychotherapy you can just show them how the approach is useful for them. Well, I tell them that I, I'm like other... Unlike some of the therapists they may have been to or known or heard about, I don't just use words. I work directly with the body, with muscle tension, with breathing, and I, and I ask if that's okay with them. And I, I will uh, sometimes touch them, and I always ask, you know, would it be all right if I touch you on your back or if I touch the muscles in your neck? Good. So... I'm curious. But they don't come to me always knowing that I'm a body psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah. So you just demonstrate it uh, as something that works for them. And they get into it gradually. Yeah. So what would you say, you know, just as a, you know, as we're approaching the end of the interview, what would you want to uh, say to um, other members of USABP, either about the work itself or about research or about... Uh, I, I think we've got to do research that can be published in peer-reviewed journals, widely known, because I think everybody should be trained. Every, I think every person who works with emotional and physical problems should have some training as a body psychotherapist so that they can help people breathe more easily, so they can help people move more easily and get in touch with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And what would you recommend to, uh, to other members of USABP individually as people uh, to get more in touch with their own bodies? Oh, come on, that's a tough thing to say. <laughs> I didn't want to... <laughs> you know, I hope just... we all do things... To keep, I, hope, I hope we all practice what we preach, yeah. work with our own bodies, and help get people to help. I mean, I personally get a massage about every other week. I personally take 
do at least two or three hours of of, uh, of exercise, mm-hmm. and uh, I pay careful attention to what I eat because if I eat the typical diet that I see happening in New York, if you go when I'm in New York, I see um, I see people on the street drinking coffee and eating sweets. Mm-hmm. You can't survive on that. Your body isn't gonna isn't gonna stay in good shape. Yeah. And so I hope we all pay attention to those things, as well as to breathing and keeping our bodies in good shape. Yeah. And paying attention to our feelings. Mm-hmm. And handling them appropriately. I mean, I don't think, you know, there, there was a whole era where you just let your feelings all hang out, and I don't think that's so useful. There are boundaries that we need to know how to keep, but that doesn't mean that you implode your feelings. So yeah. I think... We always got our own therapy once in a while. <laughs> and I do that too. Thanks, Alice. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.